0: This is a Vantage House production.
1: Hi, folks. Jalen here. Today is March 1st, and if you're over capitalism as much as I am, and it also happens to be a Friday, then this is the deal.
2: The stock market is now down 21 percent.
3: Just broad-based declines across all of the major technology sectors.
1: A
2: lot of their customers are freaked out, waiting to see how low the Dow will go. The
1: 2008 housing market crash and the Great Recession that followed marked a turning point in the American and global economy. Since 2008, inequality has deepened dramatically and some economists, sociologists, and content creating activists point to that moment as the end of capitalism as we knew it. In 2007, before the financial crisis and more importantly, the response to it, the richest 1% of Americans owned 35% of the country's total wealth. The next 19% of Americans owned 51% of the total wealth and the rest of the population, 80% of Americans, owned just 14%. But by 2011, that top 1% owned 43% of total American wealth, and the bottom 80% owned only 7%. By 2019, just three people owned more wealth than the bottom half of all Americans combined. And then COVID happened, and the wealth held by billionaires in the US increased by 70%. The richest 1% in America now owns more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. That money isn't stuffed under their mattresses either. Most of it is invested. That's how it keeps growing. According to a report by Oxfam, the investments of just 125 billionaires emit at least 393 million tons of earth heating carbon each year. That's the equivalent of France. France. Each individual billionaire is emitting an annual CO2 average that is a million times higher than someone in the bottom 90% of humanity. A million times. Before the COVID wealth expansion, the world's wealthiest, the 1%, a group that includes billionaires, millionaires, and those who earn more than 140,000 a year, I bet some of you are surprised to find out that yes, you are in the 1% produce emissions equal to the poorest 66% of humanity. That's roughly 5 billion people. There is a scientific consensus that for every 1,000 tons of fossil carbon burned, a person will die a premature death. Joshua Pierce, professor at the University of Western Ontario says, if you take the scientific consensus of the 1,000 ton rule seriously and run the numbers, Human-caused global warming equates to a billion premature dead bodies over the next century. That means each of those 125 billionaires, their investments could produce enough carbon to kill 393,000 people per year. That's intense. These are individuals with names like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, and 120 others who will singularly be producing enough carbon to kill 393,000 mostly poor people every year through the CO2 of their bank investments alone. This analysis hasn't even taken into account the CO2 output of their lifestyle choices, private jets, yachts, space travel, capitalism, unchecked wealth accumulation, inequality, Poverty and climate collapse are all inextricably linked. I feel like this is a good place for an ad. Let's have an ad.
3: Hello?
2: Hey, did you hear about the call last night? No, what happened? So this lady called in. She said it was about one in the morning and two kids showed up at her door. They wanted to get inside. Oh no, were they okay? Well, yeah, no visible signs of distress. Kept saying their mom was all right with it. We get this, they knew the caller's name. Did she let them in? No, because they didn't have eyes. Like the black-eyed children?
1: No, something worse.
2: Hi, we are your hosts, Ada and Arlene of the Paranormal Radio Show. And we want to discuss the anomalies and oddities of this reality with real-life paranormal and strange stories. The truth is out there.
1: Is this what capitalism was always designed to do? Karl Marx certainly thought so, writing all the way back in the 1860s that capitalism would be defined by growing inequality, economic crises, and unbridled consumerism that is the very foundation of the climate crisis. Some economists, socialists, and those ever-producing content creators point to insane wealth equality and climate catastrophe as evidence of late-stage capitalism. And some say capitalism is already in the rearview mirror. So we thought we'd take a minute to break down what are the so-called stages of capitalism and what might be available to us if capitalism has really reached its natural conclusion. The stages of capitalism aren't universally agreed upon, but let's say there's three – early, middle, and late. Early capitalism began in the late 1700s and was driven by industrialization and the rise of private ownership. The middle stage was characterized by economic growth, expansion, and the establishment of market economies, and and late-stage capitalism is the final boss in which capitalism's inherent problems are so pronounced that it has become unsustainable. Karl Marx theorized in 1867 that capitalism would gradually concentrate wealth and power in the hands of a few who would essentially rule over a large impoverished class, ultimately causing a social breakdown. Karl Marx, importantly, was not an economist, he was a philosopher. The field of economics as we think of it today was actually born of capitalism. The quote father of economics, Adam Smith, wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. Let me let the former Greek Minister of Economics, Yanis
0: Varoufakis, tell us a little bit more about this moment in time. Tom, the the way I see it is this. Suppose this was 1776, and we were in uh, London, and we were having a discussion about the state of the world. Now, everywhere we looked in 1776, we would see feudalism we would see feudalism in the house of lords in the house of commons in government in every local council around the world um, on the land we would see peasants we would see you know aristocrats and yet we do know that don't we already feudalism had died and it was being gradually but fast being replaced by something called capitalism the magnificent shift of power from the owners of land to the owners of machinery of uh, steamships of electrical grids later on hmm? and the shift of wealth creation from rent accumulation to profit making economics
1: as an academic field grew in popularity and in its power alongside capitalism which is why some creative lefty anti-capitalists say the field is trash
2: the field of economics shouldn't exist Since the 1800s, it's been used to just defend the rich. It's called a science, so exploitation can be justified by it. And physics envy is common with economists. (laughs) You see, in the 1800s, Karl Marx wrote Capital, explaining working class impoverishment wasn't good or inevitable. But the emerging capitalist class said, I don't like this trend at all. We better find some way to make ourselves not look evil. Instead of doing something useful, cause you know these guys are jerks. Some dudes decided value doesn't really come from work. Making money makes you good, said with a wink, nudge and a smirk. The price tells you the value of your worth economy was once the moral philosophy of exchange economics tidies up by throwing morality away perhaps einstein should be listened to when he clearly say we should be on our guard not to overestimate science and scientific methods when it's a question of human problems and we should not assume that experts are the only ones with the right to express themselves on questions affecting the organization of society
1: but now that that's out the way let me quote a couple important economists who have placed us on this timeline of late-stage capitalism and here, I'm going to borrow from Sydney University's David Elias Avilas Espinoza, who wrote a piece called Unpacking Late Capitalism. German historical economist, Werner Sombart, coined the term about 100 years ago when he defined the capitalist economic system into those three periods. He saw himself in the 1920s, already in the late capitalist time period, based on how shitty things were after the First World War economically, politically, socially. And if you thought those times were bad, what came next would really scare them. But of course most people, and being the gardens of capitalism itself, most economists, were too busy enjoying capitalism to worry much about its demise. That lasted until economist Ernest Mandel published Late Capitalism in 1975. Mandel saw late capitalism and the economic expansion after World War II, where we have the emergence of multinational companies, globalization, rise in corporate profits, skyrocketing individual wealth and capital investments into non-traditional products, like the expansion of credit. Ah, the expansion of credit. That's bringing us back to um, the 2008 housing market crash, isn't it? Then in 1991, literary critic Frederick Jameson published his analysis pointing to globalization and the post-industrial economy where everything, everything becomes commodified and consumable, and thus marking the birth of the influencer. That brings us to Thomas Piketty, who published Capital in the 21st century in 2013, arguing that because the ownership of capital reaps more reward than the labor, there's very little incentive to work hard and the system itself is incompatible with a dynamic, meritocratic, and innovative society. Jonathan Crary outlined in his book, *Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep, how this system is enabled by intrusive technologies like social media, and is eroding basic human needs like sufficient sleep, and is eliminating our time of reflection and contemplation. Okay, so let's sum up. How do we recognize late capitalism, intrusive technology that keeps us awake and takes over our time for reflection and contemplation, boring architecture, (laughs) a decline in innovation, the commodification of everything, including people and our images, massive debt, globalization, skyrocketing individual wealth, insane corporate profits, social breakdown, recurrent economic crises, global inequality climate catastrophe. Wow, this is making the sustainability of capitalism look pretty bleak. But maybe it's already done and
0: dusted. Let's pick up where Yanis Varoufakis left off. Already we have undergone a transformation to something like feudalism, but a very technologically advanced version of it. Markets have been replaced by platforms. So Amazon.com is not a market. It looks like a market, but it's more like a digital fiefdom, a cloud fiefdom, <laughs> belonging to one man whose accumulation of wealth is based not on profit, but on a form of rent. Every time you buy something on Amazon, thirty, forty percent of the price goes to Mr. Bezos. Verifakis argues that the massive sums of money
1: that were supposed to save our economies in the wake of the financial crisis and the pandemic have instead supercharged big tech's hold over every aspect of the economy. The idea of this new world where everything belongs to a few tech overlords and we are all laboring in the cloud to make them money is hitting pretty hard. Whether you think capitalism has already ended or is just in its final throes, or maybe you think it's still a net positive and you'd just like to see it adapt to be more humane, I think we can agree that the current system has spiraled, and the consequences, inequality and climate change are unsustainable. I am so happy to tell you you can take a deep breath. Another system is possible. Let me introduce you to Michael Meza-Testa.
3: High cost of living, homelessness, the climate crisis, inequality. These are all predictable consequences of the way our economy has been set up by economists and politicians. But what if I told you there's a new type of economics being developed that does a much better job of addressing these problems while meeting people's everyday needs? This isn't being taught at most schools. I know this for a fact because I got an economics degree from Stanford and this new type of economics wasn't mentioned. But I've been studying it myself and I've learned enough to share. Welcome back to my Ideas for a Better Economy series where today we're talking about ecological economics. Ecological economics differs from mainstream economics in a few key ways. First, it's transdisciplinary, which means it combines economics with other social sciences and life sciences. Second, it's beyond growth in that it does away with the mainstream assumption that the economy always has to be growing, and instead focuses on designing an economy that meets people's needs within the limits of our planet. And third, it operates on the assumption that the economy is part of our ecosystem, instead of something that's separate from it. As an academic field, ecological economics is relatively new. It was formally founded in the 1980s when the academic journal Ecological Economics published its first issue. But many of the ideas within ecological economics have been attributed to indigenous wisdom that's existed for thousands of years. It's gaining particular momentum in the global south, where people have been exploited or left behind by our current economic system. Like I mentioned, most schools just aren't teaching it. But as the climate crisis worsens, ecological economics is continuing to catch on more and more.
1: You know what, today we're going to do you one better. I'm delighted to welcome to the show my guest, Michael Mezzatesta. Michael, hi, thanks for coming on to the Delve. How's it
3: going? I'm doing good, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Actually, our head of production, Madison, so excited to have you on she literally said tell michael i said hi so madison says hi
3: (laughs) shouts out to madison (laughs) that's awesome
1: so okay i'm gonna come right out of the gate questions here you are an economist is economics a real science or is it capitalist propaganda (laughs) oh wow wow
3: heavy-hitting question to start (laughs) i also studied economics
1: so it's it's
3: okay one of us (laughs) wherever wherever you go with this i'm i'm okay with it (laughs) yeah oh i won't i won't pull any punches don't worry i'd say that economics is a is an attempt to explain human behavior using quantitative tools like math and charts and models and formulas The funny thing, and if you study economics, you know this, when you study it, economics professors are always like, this is what you need to learn for the exam, but this is not how it really works, right? Mm. Human behavior Mm. is so much more complicated than what the economics discipline really has been able to capture. But I think, you know, zooming out to your question about, is it just capitalist propaganda? I do think there's an issue with that, where a lot of economics these days is an attempt to justify a social structure That we've gotten accustomed to, and convince people that hey, we don't we shouldn't change it because this is just the way it works. Look, economics says so, right? And so there's actually a huge movement within the economics discipline to now push back on that, especially in light of some of the social problems that have come up uh, in what you could call late stage capitalism, right? The the rampant inequality, the ecological breakdown these problems have given us reason to say, hey, maybe the economy shouldn't work this way. And what's really cool is that a lot of this, a lot of this is coming from within the economics movement itself. And so mm. I'd say that the economics discipline is having a bit of an internal transformation beginning. The old guard is still very much in charge. And so the folks writing the the Wall Street Journal articles about how taxes are bad <laughs> are still, you know, like I'd say running the show but there's a loud and growing wing of a rebellion alliance you could say within the economics movement that's trying to change things to make it a bit more sustainable and and long term
1: i think this flows actually really nicely into our next question you studied economics at stanford i studied at harvard but i just played your ecological economics intro video in the monologue introducing this and there, you said you only learned about these alternatives after your time studying. What were the limits to that education that you feel uh, is, is standard, like conservative economics school, or you know, or is that just the state of learning economics in America?
3: I think most econ degrees are what you could say conservative. Mm. They are a type of economics that is. Uh, like the old guard that I just mentioned, they teach you about supply and demand, and they teach you that the economy is a closed system and the environment is like an externality. And so, any pollution is something that's separate from the econ that we're studying now, right? And so, and that's just the way that economics, that's the way the discipline evolved over the past several decades. And that's still what a lot of what we call, you know, the top institutions are teaching. To be fair to Stanford, I was there 10 years ago, mm. right? So I like to think that the curriculum has has evolved and changed. I'm, I'll believe it when I see it. I think that those underlying assumptions as to like, what is a business and what gets counted in a business model and what variables get factored into the way that we define economic growth, those fundamental assumptions need to change in order for our economics to stop being quote unquote conservative mm. and start being more regenerative and more holistic and That's a transformation that I think is going to take longer than a decade and hopefully happens fast enough because we don't have a ton of time, in my opinion, to right the ship.
1: Yeah, I want us to talk a little bit about the alternatives to capitalism that allow us to live safely within our planetary boundaries, uh, like ecological economics, uh, degrowth, and and, and a well-being economy. Can you tell us about these these models and where'd you learn them and all that good stuff?
3: Yeah. So this is all very exciting. It's all part of this wide movement of new economics ideas that are sort of coming into the mainstream. Mm. You mentioned three of, you know, the the more popular ones. Yeah. They all relate to each other. There are internal debates within the community as to which one's better than the other, but all of them, I think, could fall under the umbrella of ecological economics, which is effectively an attempt to ground the economy in a holistic view of the earth as one closed system. And so it's not like there's the economy over here and there's the environment over here, which is the way that econ students usually get taught in this more traditional conservative way. Mm. But it's saying, no, it's all connected. What's really cool about the the, the movement is that in many ways... It's a return to ideas that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. That everything's connected. Exactly. A lot of people Mm. have have made the point that ecological economics is grounded in indigenous wisdom. And this notion that like, you know, it's this pre-colonial notion that everything is connected and we're all part of a living system that we need to ground ourselves in and respect and sort of cherish and know our place in, right? Right as opposed to this sort of post-Enlightenment neoclassical view of, like, we are separate. We are these, like, gods that are separate from the natural world. So it's almost a return to a much more interconnected understanding of ourselves and the world around us. And then, you know, we can get into the specifics of every, like, degrowth means one thing, and then well-being economy is another thing. But I'd say all of them share this underlying current of, let's think of economics as really a, a question of like, what is our role on earth? And how do we structure our society in ways that allow us to flourish as humans, but also respect the boundaries of the world that that we're living on?
1: Do you think we're moving in that direction towards ecological economics? Or is there a long way to go? Are there going to be detours? Is it going to be an easy plane landing? What, what's, you know, kind of like the route here? I think everyone's so antsy about it. Everyone realizes capitalism's not working, you know? So everyone's like, what's happening? What do we do now?
3: Yeah, you know, I like to think we're on our way Mm. to to making this transition. I think it would be part of a much larger cultural and spiritual awakening because economics is just one piece of, I think, a major transition that humanity needs to go through in order to Mm. achieve a more sort of long-term model that is good for people and the planet. But uh, there's there's a lot of risks involved, right? Because as things start to break down, that creates political turmoil. And it creates potential crises, like if global warming gets worse, it could create a huge amount of global migration that could destabilize countries and and cause conflicts between countries. And so I think ecological economics gives us a way out in the traditional framework of there are nation states, they govern economies, we can pass policies and reform things so that we can build a better society. Mm. And as someone who doesn't want to see like things break down and <laughs> massive wars and lots of people dying, I'm like, no. oh, this is what we need because this is how we can sort of right the ship and steer our way out of this mess. But there's obviously the risk that things destabilize further And in those scenarios, you know, I read a lot of science fiction and speculative fiction. I also read a lot of history. Mm -hmm. When things get unstable, oftentimes authoritarianism becomes the norm. And people have have warned that we might be returning to like a more sort of fascist style of governance, which Mm -hmm. would be a departure, I think a real turn away from the direction I think we need to go. And that would be really scary. And so I don't have, I wouldn't say... I want to paint a great picture of like we're just going to change our economics assumptions and everything's going to be better. I I hope that's what happens. Yeah. But also there's a lot of risk yeah. and that's why I said at the start like we don't have a ton of time. The sooner we can make this transition, the better our chances of sort of steering through these crises in a humane way that doesn't result in a lot of, you know, destruction and and scary things happening. And I don't want I don't like to be a doomer, like I don't I don't want to Say, hey, you know, things are all going to break down because humans are very resilient. And I don't know what's going to happen. Sure. But I do see ecological economics and this economic transformation as part of what could be a relatively, you know, stable, safe transition into a better social model. And I hope it's what happens.
1: It sounds like it's going to take like some political buy in too. Definitely. It's not just going to be, you know, people and and businesses, it's going to take some policy changes. A lot of This just off the bat sounds like perhaps something Democrats could easily buy in Mm. for saving the environment, for providing, you know, resources to change our economic system. What is in it for, you know, more conservative or right leaning politicians? Are are we going to see reduced taxes or is there going to be deregulation? What's kind of like, uh, I guess, some of the benefits from that side of the aisle?
3: Yeah, well, I think a big – what's really interesting is the the traditional conservative movement is no longer the mainstream, right? I think that what's happened in the age of Donald Trump and the rise of some of these more populist conservative figures is that there's a, a big part of their narrative is actually about, like, the deep state and the these elites that are kind of, like, really – fixing the world in their favor. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of the ideas that I'm talking about are actually very aligned with that narrative and actually mm-hmm. fit right in, in the sense that, yes, there, there is a establishment of people who really like the way the economy works now. Yeah. Right? It works well for them. These are people who Probably have... Probably Donald Trump. Potentially, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. When we talk specifically about, about him, it's, it gets a little murky, but if you think about the overall you know, belief system of folks on the right these days about how there's, you know, the system is rigged against them. I actually agree with a lot of those points. I'm like, yeah, the the people meeting in Davos deciding like how the economy is going to work are not the right people to be making those decisions because they're the ones who benefit the most from the way things work now. And so what are some new, new, more radical ideas that can really shake things up? I think that a world where we have a a healthy environment, and we actually start to reduce the power of some of the people who have been making the calls for hundreds of years and getting them wrong, and start to give more of that power back to the people, I think is a narrative that people on the left and the right side of the aisle can, can get behind. So I don't really think it's a conservative versus liberal issue. I do think it's a, I think it's a question of how long are we willing to maintain these structural inequalities and structural problems for the benefit of the folks who have who have set them up and benefited from them the sooner we change that the better Mm, i think we might disagree on like what an ideal world looks like right like there might be some there might be some differences in what what is the correct tax rate someone like me i'm like i don't think billionaires should exist right i don't think you should be allowed to have that much money. <laughs> I think that's a
1: question on here. Uh, actually,
3: yeah. Okay, okay. Nice. <laughs> but, you know, I think more conservative people would be like this guy's crazy, right? Mm. Uh, of course we shouldn't we should we shouldn't put ceilings on how much money people can make. I'm like, okay, how much is enough? That's probably yeah. where we should cap it, right? So, we may disagree on the details, but I don't think we disagree on the fact that BlackRock and Vanguard should probably not be Running our political system, right? And so there's a lot of overlap in, in, the, in the future that we all want. Yeah. The next question is about recognizing how
1: capitalism isn't working. I, I think one of the ways recognizing capitalism working is the creation of billionaires and kind of unlimited money for a select few people and this um, equality gap, you know, being insane. What are some of the ways you're recognizing that capitalism isn't working?
3: I think I think the biggest one for me is, and the one that has my attention right now, is just the, the ecological breakdown we're starting to see. Mm. I think that the fact that the environment is treated as an externality in traditional economics is coming back to bite us in a major way right now, and it's only going to get worse. And so until we can find a way to internalize the environment within our thinking and make it part of the goal yeah. of businesses to actually maintain a livable environment. It's going to get worse. So, I think that climate change is a natural example of the way that capitalism is structured. It's not an aberration. Like yeah. this is this is what was always going to happen <laughs> when we when we prioritize infinite growth on a finite planet and ignore the environmental costs of of business. Yeah. I think that Rising inequality is the other big one for me. I think, you know, depends on how you cut the numbers, but poverty in the in my country, in the United States, has gotten worse in the last couple of decades. There, there are fewer people who feel like their their future is better than, you know, their present. Yeah. People are starting to, to lose hope on that. And I think that um, those are all indicators of, of capitalism not working. At the same time, I, I think I would seem loony to some people if i didn't mention that over the course of the last hundred years we've made major strides in poverty globally right infant mortality rate has come way down there have been a lot of great things that have happened during quote-unquote capitalism right and so i think that we need to be able to recognize the good things that we've been able to achieve as a as a species in the last couple hundred years as well as the things that give us reason to believe we need to make major changes moving forward and i don't think that simply capitalism is the problem i think we need to take what's worked about the economy that we've set up and then be honest about what we need to change and come up with some new version of of what it could look like and i don't care what we call it if it's capitalism if it's i think that like if we use the word socialism or communism, it scares some people. You're
1: right, yeah. But if
3: we use the word capitalism, I think it really rubs a lot of people the wrong way now because of yeah. how bad things have gotten. And so maybe we need a new ism. Sure.
1: I, I want to go back right. to millionaires and billionaires Yeah, in this new system that we would go
3: towards. Do they exist? I, are you putting me in charge of the system? Or? <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why not?
3: <laughs> I, think, I think that it totally depends on... I don't think that uh, billionaires make a ton of sense in a more sustainable economy. Hmm. Why don't billionaires make a lot of sense? I think it's because um, we need to be able to recirculate wealth in the economy. When few people accumulate so much wealth, and you know, people talk about wealth isn't really a zero-sum game, and I believe that. Just because one person's rich doesn't mean another person can't be rich. But we do need money to flow through the system in order to like improve infrastructure, in order to you know, invest in social projects and for other businesses to succeed. And so I think that when it concentrates so much, it kind of creates stagnation in the in the economy. And so that's one reason I think billionaires need to have some sort of wealth cap. It's like, okay, once you have a yacht or two or three, yeah, yeah. you're good. Like, everything else that you do at that point can be, you know, I, I have this funny idea. And I've talked about talked, I've read about this a bit too, like, once you hit a billion, maybe your wealth is capped and then you get some sort of trophy. You know, maybe there's like <laughs> yeah. a parade. We should still celebrate people, I think, who create a lot yeah. of wealth. I'm not saying that innovation right. is bad. It's just like, at what point are you good? So how much is enough? Is it a billion? Is it hundred million? Is it 50 million? There are some really good debates happening on that right now. There's a new book that came out recently called Limitarianism, uh, who someone like came name. forward and said that a, a million dollars is enough. I don't know what the right number is. Mm-hmm. I think that I would think of it in terms of a progressive taxation system so that taxes get higher as you achieve higher levels of wealth. And at some point, I think the tax hits 100%. If it's a billion, if it's 2 billion, if it's 500 million, Damn. I, I don't have a clear answer on that. I just know that there's somewhere up there Damn. where you've got enough money. <laughs> and I think that the one last point I'll make on the billionaire... Thing as to whether we should have them, is that I think that the the more compelling argument against billionaires is actually a cultural one. Hmm. In the sense that I think that the way that culture has changed during this capitalist era is that, and especially kind of due to a lot of changes in American culture and, and American politics, especially on the conservative side that ha- that we've exported, it's this notion that whatever you achieve is your right. And whatever you accumulate in terms of wealth is your right to keep. And the government should, should keep their hands off of that, right? And, and I'm not trying to say that I want to give all your, anyone's money to the government. But what I do think is that when you have a bunch of people who are waking up every day thinking that they aren't enough because they don't have as much as the next guy, and you have people with hundreds of millions of dollars who are depressed because they feel they don't have enough money because they're not a billionaire, like That is a problem, I think, because it creates this unquenchable thirst for more that we have put on a pedestal mm. and treated as some sort of godly quality of people in the, in the spirit of economic growth and capitalism. But I think it creates a lot of unhappy people, actually. And when you start to actually believe that you can have enough and that you can be satisfied with where you're at in life. It's actually a major transformation in people's hearts and minds that I think will lead to not only like happier people, but also a lot fewer of the consequences that we talked about in terms of climate change and inequality and things like that. So I'm just like, yo, let's let's slow down a little bit and think, how much do we really need? And why can't we just be happy right now with what we have? And I think that that's a cultural shift that underlies a lot of the ecological economic stuff, but is is kind of beneath the surface that I think will really resonate with a lot of people.
1: Yeah. I like to end these asking people what's something that makes them hopeful for the future. Yeah. I don't know whether it's the adoption of ecological economics. Is it the tax rate eventually capping billionaires out? What's, what's something that makes you hopeful?
3: For me, it's young people. Okay. Definitely. I think that the conversation I've been privileged to be a part of because I do a lot of my work on social media and I post, you know, these ideas Mm. in places where they can get seen by a lot of young folks has given me a lot of hope because it seems like a lot of younger people are really ready for something different. Yeah, And people always say that folks get more conservative as they get older, young people are always idealistic, and then they kind of give up on those ideas. But that's not happening to millennials or Gen Z, like our generation and and the generation Mm. behind us are not. Mm.
1: I think I'm getting slightly more conservative, just like ever so slightly. And
3: I might be too. And I think that's probably happening over time (laughs) to a lot of us, right? But it it seems to be like much less of a trend. Yes. Especially because the economy hasn't really performed in a way that makes us feel secure about the future. Mm. And so... In some ways there's a dark side of what I'm saying of like maybe we would all start to feel better if we actually had hope. Oh wow. But if you really do believe that like things need to change, which I do, and you see that the economic and demographic trends of of people really, I think, ready for that change. Yeah. I really believe that the next few decades are gonna see some major transformations. And my my fear is that things become much more unstable. Mm-hmm. But my hope is that these since these conversations are happening and there's a lot of people who are receptive to them that we're going to make the shift into a into a system that we all feel better about and that uh, really preserves the future for for not just us but our our children and their children yeah. and down the line.
1: There's I I know I said we were going to end this but there's a, something that just popped in my head. Yeah. There's also just variations of where countries are at in their journey of capitalism. Mm-hmm. All countries aren't in this post-capitalism phase like the United States. Some are kind of like Indonesia, which is still, you know, maturing. And and Brazil, you know, it's some of these major mm-hmm. developing mm-hmm. economies that are, you know, wealthier by economic centers, but still developing. So maybe they're at would they be at a easier place to kind of have their shift towards ecological capitalism versus, you know, something that's a little bit more entrenched, like in the U.S. and in Europe, and I, I don't I don't know. What does what does that look like?
3: Yeah, well, there's a there's a really interesting uh, bit of research that I was just looking at with my friends at the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and the effect of economic growth on life expectancy and happiness and other social outcomes. And what's really interesting is that there's kind of a threshold at which an economy has developed enough that more growth doesn't really help mm. people be happier oh, wow. but for developing countries there's still i think quite a need for things to continue growing and continue developing and th- what's really cool that we're seeing in the in you know a lot of places in South America and Africa right now are that they're energy mix is is trending towards renewables more quickly than what we've seen in more developed countries. And so the technological changes that are happening with electric solar panels becoming much cheaper and things like that are hitting developing countries now. And we're seeing increased adoption, which is all very cool. Mm. But another thing that I think is important to think about is how at some point a country has had like enough quote unquote economic growth okay. to where the demographics kind of stop improving and you just start to see wealth concentrating at the top and not a lot of like social progress as a result of it. And so I think that in some respects, I really roll my eyes when I see people in developed countries like myself tell the developing world how they should grow or how they should run their economies. I think that's like very sort of Mm. uh, world economic forum type, like we're gonna mastermind the economy. I'm not gonna tell anyone what to do. But I do think that the developed world has reached a point where more wealth isn't really creating social benefit. It's actually creating some problems, especially because it's becoming so concentrated. And so Mm. I think we have a lot to do to combat inequality. I think that developing countries, the more they take advantage of new technologies and renewable energy while they develop, the better. But I think overall, It's time for at a species level, a conversation about like, what type of economy do we really want? And I think that that conversation is, is emerging, and it's getting louder and louder. So I appreciate you for having me on to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Where can folks learn more about you? Yeah, so I've got my website, michaelmez.com. My main platforms right now are Instagram and TikTok. And so if you want to watch my explainers of these ideas, I try to keep them pretty short. So yeah, I'd say that's those are the best places to find my work today.
1: Awesome. Michael, I really, really appreciate it. This was really fascinating and
3: fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, and I appreciate Absolutely. it.
1: Absolutely thank you all for listening in shout out to madison on production what a great episode thank you to eli brendan and javon holding down sound you guys are incredible i'm jalen this is the Del, and i'll see you next friday